but you can grab a seat. This is life hacked. First up, folks, do you have an high electric bill? Are electric costs killing you? Cut those costs by plugging everything in your house into a series of daisy-chained power strips. <laughs> now, as far as the power company knows, you're only using one outlet. Life <laughs> Next up, everybody's had this problem. After a few months, your new computer starts running slowly. Just free up some memory by deleting all those photos of your baby. <laughs> you don't need them. She doesn't even look like that anymore. Life yes. Tired of waiting for your pumpkin spice latte? Well, consider this. Your name could be Todd. <laughs> Life <Yes>. Man. <laughs> Everybody loves a good life hack, right? Man, when I when I was looking this up this week, I mean, there are literally millions of, of videos on YouTube. There are millions of articles online where people are trying to explain the, the way to get the most out of life, right? It's a, it's a way to have a life hack or use your, you know, old utensils for this sort of project or use your old mason jars to do all this stuff. I mean, we love that idea. We love using those sorts of workarounds, those sort of sneaky ways to get more out of life. Right? We love the idea of trying to discover new uses for the things that we already own. We love feeling like we're, we're reaching the full potential of what we have. Right? We don't want to waste any potential of those straws that we've had sitting in our pantry. So let's turn them into a robot. I don't know. That was, uh, I don't know if that works. But maybe. Right? We, we love those sorts of life hacks. And yet the truth is that we as believers can find ourselves actually wasting the potential of the gospel. We can find ourselves wasting the potential of the good news of Jesus Christ. Because sometimes we as believers, without even realizing it, can narrow our understanding of the gospel to the point where it limits, we limit its relevance on our daily lives. And it's really unfortunate. It's, it's tragic, really. You see, this semester, these past few weeks, we've been talking a lot about salvation. And we're doing this because we as a church, just sort of as a Christian community, we love talking about salvation, right? We love talking about how you need salvation, or you got to find salvation, you need to get saved. And what we've had in, consistently, in consistency, unfortunately, we've lacked in clarity. So many times we find ourselves talking about salvation and these ideas, and we throw out these words, and we, we toss out these concepts, and we discuss these different things, and yet we don't ever pause to simply define our terms. We don't pause to explain what we're talking about. So for the last few weeks, for the next two weeks, we here in Grace College are talking through soteriology which is just the big church word for the study of salvation. And we're doing this because as we better understand salvation, really the more we understand salvation, the more, the better we can appreciate the gift, the amazing, incredible gift of life that God has offered to humanity by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. Today, in particular, we're looking at the gospel. We're looking at this good news of Jesus Christ. And we're, we're looking at it in one of the most clear explanations we have in all of Scripture of what that gospel really is. When you boil it down, what's the clearest explanation of the gospel? We find it in 1 Corinthians 15. And what we see in that is, 
is not just a, a great way to kind of know the gospel and kind of log it away in our brains. Instead, what we see is a clear explanation that then allows us to broaden our understanding of the gospel, broaden our understanding of how it can be experienced and expressed in our daily lives. So we'll be in 1 Corinthians 15, if you have a Bible or there's one near you or if you want to turn there on your phone or whatever app you use. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is kind of the classic passage that people turn to when they're looking for just a clear, concise explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. 15, generally people use verses like 1 through 8 or 1 through 11. Uh, We're starting in verse 1, chapter 15, where Paul is explaining to the church at Corinth this simple thing. He says, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel that I preached. Now, this is the gospel that I preached to you, that you received and on which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold firmly to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul's saying, look, I want to make clear for you, crystal clear, this gospel that I've told you before. This gospel that I preached, this gospel that you've heard, I want to just make sure I go back over it and explain it in just absolute clarity for everyone because what they were finding is that at the church in Corinth, there were some people who didn't quite get it. He's saying, I want you to understand it in its fullness because otherwise, if you're not believing in in the entirety of our gospel, in the the true gospel, he says, you're believing in vain. He says that belief is pointless because in the church in Corinth, what was happening is there were people there that were heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. And one of the really cool things, or one of the big things in Greek philosophy is you'd say, hey, you know what? Physical world, eh, eh it's, you know, it's not that great. Spiritual world, awesome, right? There's people that would say the physical, anything physical is bad. Anything spiritual, though, super awesome. And so these people, when they heard about Jesus Christ and they heard, oh, he's God and he's doing all this stuff, they were, they were trying to bridge those two philosophies together, trying to bring Jesus Christ into that sort of Greek philosophical argument. And they would say, okay, well, yeah, yeah, he died, uh, but he didn't really rise again. Because if he rose again, that would mean there was a physical resurrection. And remember, physical is like, eh, poo-poo. Like, we don't like physical stuff. So instead, he just had the spiritual resurrection. That's what we look forward to, is the spiritual resurrection. Paul's saying no. He says no. In fact, this entire chapter is all about that. It's like, no. We have to believe in a physical resurrection. We have to believe that Christ truly rose. You have to understand the gospel in its entirety. You can't deny the resurrection or else your belief is in vain. Right? It'd be like if you registered for a class this upcoming spring and you, read, you, know, you signed up and you paid for it. And then you kind of decided though, like, ah, oh, you know, but I don't really, I'm not going to go to it ever or like take any tests or turn in any projects. If you did that, and some of us have probably actually tried that, you know, and you, so you could probably ask your neighbor, how'd that go? And they'll tell you, no, not good. Like, I'm just, I'm, I have to go home now. You know, like, we, we've tried that, and it doesn't really work out, right? Because we uh, failed to understand the entirety of that class, of what it meant to really re- register for that class. Paul is saying, you have to believe the entirety of the gospel. So he starts off in verse 3, explaining, okay, well, what is it? What is the gospel in its most clear, concise form? What is the gospel? Well, for I passed on to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Paul starts off saying, look, here's the first thing you have to understand. Here's the first tenet of our gospel. Jesus Christ died 
for our sins. According to scriptures. This is huge. This is huge. Paul is intentionally using language right here uh, that actually points to the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Something we call the Septuagint. Uh, It was something where all these uh, Hebrew Jewish scholars got together and they were like, man, you know, we love our Old Testament. We love uh, our scriptures, uh, the law and the prophets and the poetry and all this great stuff. But they were finding that all these Hebrews were no longer learning how to read Hebrew. They weren't even speaking Hebrew. They were learning Greek and speaking Greek. And so these scholars decided, you know what, we want to make sure that they can kind of stay up to date that we want to make sure that they don't lose hold of our our valuable God-breathed scripture. So they translated the Old Testament, which was all written in primarily in Hebrew, and they translated it into Greek. That's what we call the Septuagint. And so we have the Septuagint, and that's what a lot of early believers used. Uh, And so Paul is specifically, even though he knew Hebrew, he could read Hebrew, he's quoting, he's using language here that directly reflects the Septuagint translation of Isaiah 53, which is a huge passage. It's a huge passage for the, especially a Jewish audience because they know this as a very significant prophecy about this character that they would come to call the suffering servant. And they called him that because he was a servant who suffered a lot. Like that's, that's, they're very clear in their uh, descriptions. Because this was a guy who was despised and rejected by people. One who experienced pain, was acquainted with illness. People hid their faces from him. He was despised, and we considered him insignificant. But he lifted up our illnesses. He carried our pain. Even though we thought he was being punished, attacked by God, and afflicted for something that he had done, But he was wounded because of our rebellious deeds, crushed because of our sins. He endured punishment that made us well. Because of his wounds, we have been healed. Paul is saying, you've read about the suffering servant. You've seen this in your scriptures. And what Paul is connecting this to is Jesus Christ. Now the ancient Jewish people, right, the, the nation of Israel, they, they didn't get that. It was tragic. And Paul laments that in Romans, saying that he wishes he could do anything. He wishes he could sacrifice himself if it meant that the Jews would understand this connection, yet they don't. But he's saying for, for those of us that do believe, that do accept Jesus Christ as our Lord, as our Savior, as our God, he says this, this is him. According to scriptures, he died. Why? Because of our sin. He was wounded. Why? So that we could be healed. Jesus Christ died for you and you and you and you and me. God died for us. That is something that is monumental. (laughs) That is something that should be awe-inspiring. That is something that should defy just all logic and reason in our little brains. God died for us. It's incredible. There's a kid by the name of Quincy Croner. Quincy Croner, uh, as all kids are prone to do, loves uh, hanging out in the woods with his dad. He's the small one, Quincy is. Uh, And uh, he's loving it, right? Apparently walked just straight out of an L.L. Bean catalog and into this picture uh, where he's just loving life. 
And he, Quincy, uh, was unique in the sense that uh, he had this one particular fascination in his life uh, with garbage trucks. Quincy loved garbage trucks, would love when the garbage man would show up every single week. He would weigh at the window and try to wave at them and was just super psyched when they showed up. They'd wave back at them and he was like, just, blah! Like just he loved it, loved the whole, whole process. And so his parents saw this and they decided to uh, try to kind of use that as leverage to get him potty trained. They're like, hey, Quincy, if you will just, if you learn how to use the big boy potty, like we will give you your very own garbage truck, right? At which point I'm assuming Quincy just like takes off his arms like, all right, I'm done. Like we're, do- we're doing this. Like, come on, bring it. And so sure enough, he gets by drained. They give him a garbage truck. And not only that, they give him the garbage truck. And he says, when they told him, hey, you know what? If you want, you can show your garbage truck to the garbage man. You can show it to the sanitation workers next time they show up. Quincy was like, absolutely, 100% yes. Let's make this happen. So sure enough, The next time the garbage truck came rolling down the street, they went out to meet the workers. They went to meet the guys. And Quincy was going to show them his garbage truck. And Quincy was so incredibly excited. He was so beside himself with joy and just fervent passion at getting to show these sanitation workers his very own garbage truck uh, that when it was captured in in a picture, some of us may have already even seen it. Some Some of us may have already even witnessed the beautiful moment of Quincy meeting the garbage truck guys because everyone loved this photo. This photo got passed around all over the web a while back because the people were just like, man, that's beautiful, that paint expression on his face because he was so excited, right? Like he was so excited to meet these guys that he'd been waving at his heroes, show them his garbage truck. He was just so incredibly excited. I think his brain just melted in that moment and he just couldn't handle it. I mean, he just couldn't grasp the situation. I mean, this is, honestly, this is what we should look like every single day. If you are a believer who knows that Jesus Christ died for you, that God died for you, that should be your face at all times. Maybe not at all times, but sometimes, right, at least. Uh, we know that God himself lived, died, and rose again for us. He lived the life we could not live, died the death that we deserved so that we might have life. That's incredible. That is incredible. Never let that become old hat. Never let that become old news. God died for you because he loves you. That's something that we can no, that's something we can grab a hold of. That's something that honestly we should experience in our daily lives in lots of different ways. But I think specifically for where we are right now in our environment, in our situation, I think one of the ways that we can experience this in everyday life is, is as a source of significance in the midst of broken identities. We often, too often, Believe the lie that we don't have significance, that we don't matter. People wouldn't even notice if we were gone. Or, or sometimes we believe the lie that we have to somehow achieve or attain or acquire our significance in a certain relationship or in a certain job or in a certain uh, organization, or in a certain social scene, or in a certain uh, body type, or in a certain uh, GPA. 
we think somehow that we have to do something. I have to achieve something or do something or say something or, or prove myself to these different types of people in order to find a significance, in order to gain or, or achieve significance. And I'm telling you, that, that will never pan out well. That will never lead to satisfaction. That will never leave, lead to, to lasting significance in your life. Sometime this past year, we went through the Song of Songs and we got to look at just a lot of uh, what our culture says about sexuality and about uh, body image and all this great stuff because it's, it's in our scripture and it was really fun to go through all that. And, and one of my favorite moments was when we looked at the Song of Songs and we looked at, you know, they're, they're celebrating uh, their lives and celebrating the significance of of each other, and it basically came down to a lot more than just what that person looked like or how that person behaved, uh, which is in just direct contrast to so much of what we hear. Even when things that we consider to be super positive messages, like you might remember from the past few years uh, when that girl who was all about bass came out into the scene talking about her mother's horrible dating advice, and she let us know that, you know, every inch of you is perfect. From the bottom to the top. And this resonated with us on some level as a culture. Because there, this is one of literally millions, millions of images that people have put together celebrating this lyric, this song little moment. Whether it's on this sort of thing or it's put on top of a silhouette with like the worst font choices I've ever seen in my life. Uh, we want to make sure that everyone knows, hey, every interview is perfect from the bottom to the top, because we thought this was a very positive message. In fact, if you really, really love your significant other, you don't just buy them flowers anymore. On top of those flowers, you have to lay a pendant that tells them <laughs> that every interview is perfect from the bottom to the top. And this is so misguided, right? We talked about this a while back, but this is so misguided because essentially what she's doing is she is saying, oh yeah, you know what? You're You're not reliant for significance upon this one body image. Instead, like your current body image this is, this is what you should really find. This is where you find your identity and your significance. And it's so misguided because all she's doing is she's taking one body type and replacing it with another. She's still saying that you find your significance, you achieve your significance, you find your identity in what you look like. Something in and of who you are is what gives you significance. And that is not true. It's not. That's never going to be satisfying. The only meaningful significance we have in life is not something that we can achieve, but it is something that we have received from God. It is a gift of significance. It's an image of himself that he has given to every single person on this planet. And it's proven by the fact that Jesus Christ died for us. I know that you are significant. Because Jesus Christ died for you. Because God died for you. That's why I know you're significant. Not because you sing goofy songs. Or because you look a certain way. Or you act a certain way. Or you got a certain job. You're significant because God died for you. This is something that we can experience. This is something that we can express to the world around us. By simply seeing others as significant. By seeing others as children of the Lord Most High as people, men and women who have been created in his image. The, the truth is that our culture does a great job of dehumanizing humans. 
We love to defend people groups and yell for justice in certain sectors where it's convenient. But yet so many times what we do as a culture is we dehumanize humans. We make immigrants uh, into burdens. And we consider certain races as, as issues or, or powder kegs. We, we consider certain genders, we consider women to be objects. We turn babies into non-people. Humans, but not people. They don't have personhood at a cert, until a certain level of their development. We dehumanize humans as a society. So imagine what would happen if we as believers actually saw and treated everyone as valuable creations, as significant people. I think our society would notice, our culture would be shocked. I think the gospel would go forth if we were willing to just see every person as significant, to speak to them, to act towards them, to love them, because they're significant. But Paul says it's not just that Jesus died. That's not the end of the gospel. He says, but that also that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Again, this entire chapter is centered on this idea that the resurrection happened. It's focused on the importance of the resurrection because the resurrection is proof that we worship the living God. And that's a, that's a big deal, right? It's, it's proof that we worship the one true God. The fact that Jesus Christ died and did not remain dead is proof that he was speaking truth. It was proof that he had the power to overcome death. It's proof that we are worshiping the true living God. When God appeared to Moses and wanted Moses to, to lead his people out of Egypt, God originally kind of called Moses into this sort of cave area and Moses shows up and he sees a bush that looked like it was on fire, what we call the burning bush. And God spoke to him from this burning bush and told him, hey, I want you to go deliver my people from Pharaoh. And Moses is like, whoa, man, I don't know if they'll believe me or if they'll trust me. Uh, you know, like, I just don't know how it's going to happen. How do, I, how do I tell them that you're the one who sent me? How do I let them know that you are the one who's actually empowering me in this moment? And God tells him, okay, I'll tell you what, just tell them that I sent you. And when he refers to himself, he says, this is what you call me. He says, Yahweh. Which is literally just basically breaks down into I am. That's what God, God called himself to Moses. He says, I am. Thereby implying that those other gods are not. Right? What sets our God apart from all other gods? He is. He's real. He's living. He's active. Those other gods are not. They're false. They're dead. They're idols. They're made by, by men's hands. They're carved out of wood and, and metal. Our God is, has been, is, will be the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the creator of all things, the Lord of all creation. God tells him, I am. At which point Moses says, dang, you just burnt more than that bush, God. That was sick, right? Like, that's a really cool move. Like, that's, a, that's pretty clever. Like, I am. That's what you're going to call me. And in fact, all the nations around Israel, whenever they saw Israel, when they saw the Lord work through Israel, that's what they started calling God. They're like, dang, like that, 
He's the living God. They knew Israel as the people who worshiped the living God, not the dead, false, fake gods that they, in fact, they themselves worship. I said, man, the Israelites, they worship the living God. Paul says this is significant, and this is something that we've seen in Scripture. He says that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul's saying that, look, we see in Scripture this idea of Christ resurrecting. And he uses language right here towards the end of chapter 15 where he says he, he refers to him as the first fruits. And this would immediately bring into mind uh, to the Israelites, they would think to the Jewish audience, they would think, okay, he's, it sounds like he's talking about the first fruits in, in terms of the, the first fruits, this thing that God talks about in Leviticus 23, where he told the nation of Israel, look, to honor me, to recognize me as the living, the one true God, every single year after Passover, the day after the next Sabbath. So, after, so Passover's over. Then you have, at some point, the Sabbath. And so the day after that, it says on that day, you're going to show me your first fruits. You're going to dedicate your first fruits, meaning the best of your best, like the, the, the best crop you've got or the best animal you've got, whatever it is. The first fruits of your labor, the best of the best, you're going to present to me. Because ultimately, I'm the giver of all good things. Ultimately, I'm the one who gave that to you in the first place. So you're just going to offer it back. God says, show me those first fruits. And he says, remember that that first day after the Sabbath, which was following the Passover, Jesus Christ rose on what we call Easter Sunday. You know what that day was? It was the day right after the Sabbath that was after the Passover. Sabbath was a Saturday. He rose on Sunday. On that third day, Jesus Christ proved himself to be the first fruits of the resurrection, being the best of the best. Jesus Christ proved his deity. He proved his power over sin and death. Proved that he spoke truth, that he overcame death, that he was God. This is an aspect of our gospel that we should be experiencing in our lives as a source of hope in the midst of our struggles. This is something that should give us peace even when the waves of life come against us, right? If you imagine standing on the beach and the waves are coming in, right? Sometimes there's like a little wave kind of knocks you in the shin. You're like, waves, ocean, what? Ocean smotion, right? But sometimes you're standing on the beach and there's a bigger wave. Or sometimes there's like that big old wave that comes over and knock, you got to get, get out of the way and you watch your sandcastle die and you're like, Ugh. waves, you know, and you're, you're upset, because sometimes, man, those waves can be big. They can be violent. They can, they can hurt. And that's the struggles in our lives. I mean, sometimes it's a little thing that's not that big of a deal, right? Maybe it's just a frustrating relationship that you have with a family member or a friend, someone you're dating, a roommate, Steve, right? Like, you've got that one. You're like, ah, frustrating, right? It's a struggle. Sometimes it's a, it may be just something where you're, it's school. School's demands upon your life. You've got to study for this, turn this group project. You've got to meet these people. One of our sound guys was just telling me, his, he's got this group message going with this group project people, and they're like, hey, everyone should come up to campus. They're like, 10 o'clock tonight. And I was like, oh, my gosh. That sounds terrible. Some of you are like, yeah, it's only 10. When's the night going to start, right? But, but man, that's, that's, that can be a struggle for those of us that go to bed at, at normal times or have daughters that wake up at 6. You know, I don't know. But we, we have that struggle. Some of us, we have struggles maybe, I don't know, 24 hours ago when we watch a, I don't know, football team get, I don't know, mauled by tigers. Like, that's a, that's a thing 
that for some of us can be a little bit of a struggle. It can be something that affects our mood or our disposition or the way that we treat others. There, there are relatively small struggles, but they're struggles nonetheless. We also have larger struggles, right? Some of us are even in the midst of those big waves that we tried to avoid, but they, got, they slammed us anyway. Some of us have walked through those times. Some of us are just at the beginning of one. And if you haven't hit one yet, it's coming. It's just how life goes. Even just this past couple of weeks, we as a college staff have just gotten hit by wave after wave. These men and these women that I work with are just hit and hit. One of our staff members' parents just split a little bit out of the blue. Dad just left. Another staff member's mom, just they found a cancerous mass in her. But they got to figure out and got to get out of there. A friend, close friend of mine, her family member just got in a car wreck a few weeks ago. He died. He left behind his wife and his three kids just like that. We're going to face destruction. We're going to face disease. We're going to face death. But thanks to the gospel, we know that death is not the end. Thanks to the gospel, we know that Jesus Christ has overcome the world. Therefore, there's nothing in it that we should fear. Thanks to the gospel, we realize that our hope is ultimately not found in this world. Therefore, our hope cannot be taken away by anything in this world. We, as believers, recognize that there is an existence, there's a life beyond this world. And that's where my hope lies. I store up for myself treasures in heaven. I focus my mind on the things above. I look towards that future existence, that eternity that lies before me. And that's where my hope is. This is something that we experience. It's something that we express by just allowing the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts. The term that Paul uses in Colossians 3 tells us that we can allow the peace of Christ to rule our hearts. Meaning that even when those waves come, we realize that I'm not stuck out in the middle of the ocean where these things can kind of knock me over or drown me or keep me down. Instead, where I am, I'm on a solid rock. My God is a strong tower. I'm secure on that foundation. So when those waves come, when that disaster strikes, I mean, I I don't have to lose hope. Scripture tells us, though, there is a time for rejoicing. There's a time for weeping. There's a time for mourning. Those things are good and healthy. Jesus himself wept when he saw the pain and the destruction around him. That, that, that is something that we should engage in. But according to 1 Thessalonians 4, we don't have to weep and mourn as those who have no hope. We have a greater hope. We know that death is not the end. So even our staff members, man, as these things are hitting them, I have been so impressed. So proud to see them walk through those moments, walk through that uncertainty with a peace that's just supernatural. Doesn't come from us. They in and of themselves cannot maintain, keep their composure in the midst of those horrific circumstances. But God working through them provides a peace and a patience and a humility and a joy. And it's something that the world around them notices. It's something that leads others to ask questions. 
a family member of my friend, this guy named Jake Allen. He, again, he passed away a few weeks ago, car accident, had a funeral about a week ago at Antioch where they were involved, and, and they had about five or 600 people show up to that funeral who knew the family, that loved that family, that wanted to support and honor that family, support and honor them in that horrific time to recognize his life. And he was a believer, his family, they're strong believers, and yet they have further family members who aren't. And so what was so cool was my friend who's related to him, she said that she, she was telling my wife and I just about how at that funeral, what was so beautiful was that while the pastor kind of shared a standard kind of gospel message at one point, the gospel kept popping up time and time again because he had friends and other, he had friends that would show up and they would share just about his life. They would tell stories about things that he had done. And in their stories about who he was and what he had done, the gospel would just come through. To the point where she was talking with her grandfather who does not know the Lord. And he was just, he just loved the service. Not a believer, but loved the service. Because he thought it was just so beautiful. And just loved the person, the personal stories. He loved even hearing the ways that Jake had served and sacrificed for the people around him. Because of the love he had for Jesus Christ. The gospel provides hope and provides peace that we can experience for ourselves, but also show the world around us. But Jesus Christ didn't stop there. It wasn't just that he died and rose again. What we also see in our gospel, the beauty of what we see in our gospel is that Jesus Christ returns for us, that he will return for us, that even after he uh, rose, that he appeared to Cephas, meaning Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Paul is just referring, that's one of his favorite kind of metaphors of saying, if you're a believer and you've died, uh, he knows you'll, be, you'll rise again. So he refers to him as you've just kind of fallen asleep. He says, you could go, you could talk to these hundreds of people. He says, ask them about it. Ask them about when they got to see Jesus and what happened. He says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as though to one born at the wrong time, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to even be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul says, look, I didn't even deserve to see Christ, and yet he appeared to me. Paul was on the road to Damascus. He was, he was walking this path, going to uh, go attack and persecute, a, a, a forming a, a new Christian community. And he was doing this because he was just such a pious Jew. He was so uh, fervent about Yahweh that when he saw these people trying to say that Jesus was God, man, he saw that as heresy, and he saw that as something that was worthy of being punished by death. And so he wanted to go and strike these people down. And yet on that road, Paul was knocked flat on his back and he saw Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ told him to stop persecuting Christians. So Paul became an apostle, one sent out by Christ himself. But he didn't even feel like he deserved it. Why? Because even as all these other men and women were building up the church, when Paul looked at these men and women who were building and building and building, he saw himself at that time trying to tear it down brick by brick says, I wasn't even worthy to be an apostle, and yet, here I am. says, but, 
by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me has not been in vain. In fact, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is the way we preach and this is the way you believed. Paul's emphasizing that Jesus Christ rose again and returned to his people, to his followers, to share with them his own good news. And now, Jesus Christ wants us to go and share that same news. He wants us to work at spreading that gospel, realizing that it's the grace of God at work within us. Working within us to to allow us to preach these things so that others might believe. I mean, this, this aspect of our gospel, this call, this purpose is, is something that we can grab a hold of. This is something that we can see as, man, a source of true purpose in the midst of, of a life that is maybe a lot of times filled with a fear of, of lacking or a fear of misdirection or, or a fear of missing out. Hashtag FOMO. Right? Like that's where we're afraid of sometimes. Man, what if I don't get that thing that I want? What if I don't achieve the best thing that I, that I want? And yet what we see here is a, a better purpose, a, a better call. My daughter, Charlotte, is 10 and a half months old now. Uh, she enjoys being a cow from time to time. And she currently loves not just dressing up as a cow, but also she loves uh, losing her mind in two specific sets of circumstances. Uh, One of them is if she's just gotten up from a nap, uh, she's kind of still waking up, she's just sort of dreary, trying to like, you know, get adjusted to awake time again. And in that moment, if I try to put her down, or if if my wife tries to put her down, she will lose it. Just pure rage. It's amazing to watch. She just goes, <laughs> I don't really just like sit back and be like, oh, you know, that makes me sound horrible. I'm sad for her, but it is still amazing. And she, if you try to put her down, she just flips it. Man, she just loses it in that situation. She also loves to lose her mind in the situation where if she's in the living room, she's hanging out and she sees a TV remote. She thinks to herself, well, that looks like the best toy I've ever laid eyes on. And if she's going for it and you take it away, she will lose her mind in that moment. Why? Why? I think that in this moment when you're trying to set her down, when I'm trying to set her down, I think she might be really afraid that what if, what if this is the last time that I was ever picked up? What if I'm never picked up ever again? What if I have to live on the floor now with the dog who licks my face all the time and it's gross? What if this is my existence? What if mom or dad never pick me up? What if in taking away that beautiful TV remote, I never have anything else that's just as good to play with? What if that decoy remote that dad lovingly created for me, where he took an old remote and cleaned it off and emptied out the batteries so there's no more acid available for my mouth? What if I never, what if it's not as good, right? What if that decoy remote's just not as good as those other battery acid filled remotes. What if? Man, it's something that I just never makes sense. It does not make sense to me that she's so concerned, that she's so fearful, that she cares so much in those circumstances. And yet we find ourselves so often freaking out and losing our minds because we don't get that thing that we think we need to get. 
we find ourselves asking, man, what if, what if I never have another in- internship come along? I know that this one takes me away from the situation or, or I'm not going to be able to go on that mission trip or I'm not going to be able to do those things that I told my friends or my family that I do. But what if this is my only shot? What if this is my only chance at that experience or that relationship or that organization or that job or that GPA? What if this is the only shot I get? What if I have to do this thing because there might not be a better experience out there. What if this is the only person who will ever love me back? And I know they're not a believer. I know this relationship is toxic, but what if this is the best I can find? So often we find ourselves tortured and sometimes even just paralyzed by concern and by fear. And yet, what we see in the gospel is a better purpose, is a better calling, is a better promise. That we have this purpose that we'll never miss, that won't be surpassed, because God himself gave it to us, because God himself wrote it down for us. God has called us to love him with everything we've got. He's called us to love his people, our neighbors, as much as we love ourselves. And he's called us to go and make disciples of all nations. To preach to them, to proclaim to them the good news of what Jesus Christ accomplished on their behalf. To baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's our purpose. That's our calling. Now should we work hard? Should I strive to do well in my job? Or should I strive to be a good husband or a good boyfriend or whatever it is? Absolutely. Should I dedicate myself to my earthly endeavors as though I was doing everything for the Lord? Absolutely. That's scripture. God wants you to apply yourself and work hard because he knows that in doing that, you will present a beautiful witness to the world around you, that people will see you working hard or or striving and, and seeking excellence in what you do, and they see the God working through you in that. It gives you an opportunity to, to tell people, you know what, honestly, that great idea that came up or, or that thing that I did that seemed so wonderful and loving for you, it was motivated by the fact that Jesus Christ loves me more than I could ever love you. It was motivated, motivated by the fact that God has given me so much grace that I, I'm compelled to extend that grace to the people around me. Should we work hard? Absolutely. Should we plan and be diligent with what the Lord's given us? 100% yes. But our ultimate purpose, our ultimate calling, our highest purpose, our highest calling is to spread the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And as we work hard, the Spirit works within us. How exactly does that happen? We're talking about that next week, actually. This idea that we often call sanctification. But as we strive, as we, as we walk towards that purpose, as we seek to accomplish the task that God set before us, what we know is that the Lord is faithful to use us because he wants to allow us the privilege of partnering in him, with him in that ministry. And honestly, one of the best ways that we express that to the world around us, one of the best ways that we kind of uh, identify ourselves with that purpose and with that calling uh, is through baptism. 
it's a thing that the church has done for years and years. We, we see it in Scripture because these people, they wanted to identify themselves with that purpose, with that calling, with that gospel. And so I'm really excited uh, that we as a college ministry, actually about a month from now on December 6th, we get to do our very first uh, in-town baptism. Super pumped about it because it, basically uh, another pastor and I, as we were talking about the series of salvation, soteriology, we were trying to think, man, what's, what's a way to kind of cap this series off with a, a way to celebrate these kind of intricate details that we've been discussing all semester? What's a way to kind of put feet on that? What's a way to sort of, you know, help us see the practical ramifications of, of these concepts and these theories we've been discussing? And honestly, it's two kind of classical, traditional church ordinances. I think baptism and communion are, are these beautiful representations of what, of what God accomplishes in salvation. So that's what we're doing. December 6th, we'll have some worship. We'll, we'll sing in song, celebrate, pray to the Lord. But we're also going to have baptisms. We're going to have communion. So I would just encourage you, if you've never been baptized as a believer, if you've never taken that step to, to publicly proclaim, to, to illustrate for the world that you are dead, that you've died to your transgressions, you've died to your sin. When you go under that water, it's, just, it's, a, it's a picture of how you've died to your sin. And when you rise out, it shows that you have identified with Christ, not only in his burial, but in his resurrection. And that you have risen, thanks to Christ, to a new life, to a new purpose, to a new identity. If you've never done that as a believer, I would, I would encourage you to consider doing it this semester on December 6th. Now, I'm, I'm going to have to work out some details, and we might not actually be able to do it at the 7 o'clock. Uh, I just got to figure out a few things. It might only be in the morning, just as a heads up. But if you are interested in that, if you're interested in, in being baptized, I would encourage you, Fill out a howdy card. You don't, even if you filled out one before, just give us your name and your contact information, your phone number or email or whatever it is. And somewhere on the sheet, write BAPTISM. Okay, just, that's my all caps voice, BAPTISM. Like write that somewhere on the sheet and turn it in at the back. We'll grab it and we'll get a hold of it. We'll, we'll let you know what the next steps are because we, we would really love to chat with you before you take that step, before you identify in, with Christ in that way. We would love to just have a little, just a short conversation with you. So, so give us your information at the back if, if you're interested in that. But as the band comes back up and, and leads us through just a couple more songs, I would, in, I would encourage you to, to not just wait until December 6th to, to celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ died for you, to celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ rose again, celebrate the fact that we have a higher purpose and a higher calling. I want us to celebrate that in tonight. I want us to celebrate that with, with the people around us. So we do this from time to time. If you're new, I, I promise it's, it's not awkward. It's not weird. I promise. We're going to pray with each other. You're going to look around. You're going to find one or two people. They might be like three seats away from you, but one of you has got to move, all right? Just meet in the middle or something. No one should be sitting by themselves. Find one person, two people, however the numbers work out. Could be someone that you know, that you came with. Could be someone that you don't know. That's fine. Just introduce yourself real quick. And you're going to share with that person just a name. You're going to share with them a, a name of a person that you know needs to hear the gospel. Now, I'm going to widen it to not, not just someone that maybe has never heard the gospel. Maybe not just someone that, uh, who's never placed their faith in Christ. Maybe that is the name that you give that family member, that coworker, that friend that you know needs to hear the gospel, that has never trusted in Christ as their Lord, as their Savior. Maybe it's your name. That's, that's cool. Maybe it's not just that person, though. Maybe also the name could be someone that you know who is a believer. 
And yet, they're not currently experiencing the peace of Christ. They're not currently experiencing the source of significance that's offered through the gospel. They're not experiencing, they're not acknowledging the, the source of purpose that's made available through the gospel. Maybe that's a friend, a coworker, a roommate. Maybe it's your name. But share with a partner, just briefly, that name. Don't need to give an explanation. Just give them the name and then pray. Pray together for those people. Find a partner. Ready, set, go. Lord God, we, we thank you that you are at work in the lives of the people around us. God, we thank you that your spirit is already moving and, and, and grabbing a hold of people's minds and hearts in ways that, Lord, that we don't even know. Lord, we thank you that you've identified needs before we're even aware of them, that, God, you are able to cut to the, the core of who we are. Lord, we just ask that you would, you would use us in your mission to save, that, God, you would use us to spread this gospel, that, God, you would give us opportunity to, to talk with that name that we just threw out, that, God, we get to talk to him tonight or, or tomorrow this week. God, we, we pray that you would open up the door to having a, a significant, meaningful conversation with that person. God, we pray that we, at the very least that we would, we would continue to pray for those names, for those people. That God, that our prayers wouldn't just start and stop here in this moment of the last couple minutes, but that God, these would be prayers that are on our hearts. God, that these are prayers on our lips throughout the week. You would take a moment now and just on your own ask the Lord, where do you need to be experiencing the gospel for yourself? And where's that spot in your life that you you are you just lost sight of the fact that that Christ died for you? You don't feel significant or you don't feel forgiven. Ask the Lord to show that to you. Or maybe where's that place in your, that in your life where you're anxious and you have fear and you're not allowing the peace of Christ to rule in your heart. Ask God to show that to you. Or where are you denying the new purpose, the, the calling that God has placed on your life through the gospel? Ask God to convict you of that. Ask the Holy Spirit to, to draw that in your mind. And ask the Lord to, to empower you to remember that, take a hold of it. Maybe you memorize a verse about it or whatever it is. Ask the Lord to Bring that into the forefront of your mind to keep it there so that you're able to focus on that through the week. Ask the Lord to show you where you need to experience the gospel. Ask him that right now.